Um, so first of all, I don't have any conflicts of interest. Um, there's not much more to say beyond that. So the goals for today are we're going to learn how to um, uh, categorize the chief complaint of dizziness, which uh, patients like to come in and present with that, but it's not truly a complaint, and you should not really accept that as, as their complaint. And how to differentiate causes of vertigo, which is mostly going to be central versus peripheral, and we'll talk about some of the specific pathologies, and then finally we'll go over the, the treatment of vertigo. So uh, you should never really accept dizziness as a complaint. Um, a lot of patients will say they're dizzy, but it really encompasses uh, several different sensations. Um, there's four categories. They'll either have uh, vertigo, um, they'll have lightheadedness, they may have a sense of uh, disequilibrium, or they may have a nonspecific, um, a nonspecific vertigo. And what I like to do which I learned uh, when I was looking up vertigo after uh, bungling a patient's history, is that I asked them to describe what they're feeling without using the word dizziness and basically have them really try and tell me what they're feeling rather than, rather than just des rather, or describe how they're feeling rather than tell me in, in one or two words. And it's very important to not lead the patients because a lot of time they'll kind of just agree with what you're saying. Okay, so vertigo is defined as a feeling or sensation of movement. Um, or some patients, it's also, some people describe it as dynamic tilting. So the, they may feel spinning, they may feel tilting, um, and it's caused by acute changes in the vestibular cerebellar system. The other version, and something else that may, be, uh, that may be encompassed by dizziness is near syncope or lightheadedness, and that's caused by vagal syndromes, postural hypotension, um, arrhythmias, and in that case, you should go more towards a cardiac workup. Um, but they may present as, um, you know, they'll say a little dizzy, and a lot of people will go towards syncope when someone says it's dizzy, but you want to make sure they don't have vertigo. Um, they may also complain of uh, disequilibrium, which is a sensation of falling. Um, they will say, then this is different than motion. This is where they're they don't feel sensation of motion. They feel that they may fall, which sounds like, I don't know, hopefully that's coming across, but, but it's, it's different, um, and the patient will describe it differently. And that's caused by uh, poor integration of proprioception. It's often caused by uh, multiple comorbidities, older patients that have um, you know, mild cerebellar problems, mild neuropathies, perhaps multiple medication side effects. Um, it's, sometimes it's more apparent in the evening when it's dark and they're having more trouble uh, sensing their position. And if they have this type of complaint, you should really be trying to treat their comorbidities and discuss fall prevention. Um, with these patients, and you, you want to definitely document a nice neuro exam and um, go through their medications with them and make sure they're not taking any medications which could worsen their sense of disequilibrium, which we'll go over at the end of the talk. Um, the third version of dizziness is nonspecific lightheadedness, is, uh, or maybe this is the fourth, I'm sorry, which is, uh, this is the one that's kind of the catch-all. Um, this is kind of more apparent in like psych patients, so it'll kind of be vague. Um, they won't really be able to define it. They won't have any of the other types of uh, symptoms I described previously. And then, of course, they can have sense, a sensation of uh, dizziness and imbalance or vertigo from drugs they're taking, sedatives, antiepileptics, antipsychotics are known to causing this. They may have ototoxicity, which will present as unsteadiness and hearing loss. And ototoxic meds include uh, Lasix, um, the, macro, uh, the macrolides and uh, aminoglycosides like gent and tobramycin. You can also go ototoxic from um, cancer drugs. Uh, I think vincristine and uh, cisplatin were the ones that I saw named. 
Um, so vertigo is um, somewhat common. Uh, it's only, it's, well, it's only 3% of our ED visits, but it's most common in older patients, which is a growing component of our, uh, of our population. And part of the, I found one paper that found that 32% of uh, dizzy, quote-unquote dizzy complaints were from a vestibular cause, 21% were cardiac, 11% were uh, neurologic slash central, and 4% of them were from a CVA, and 10% of dizziness complaints were described as dangerous, but this included cardiac causes like a, a aortic dissection, arrhythmia, um, a hemorrhage, um, TIA stroke, meningitis, anemia, so that, that's a pretty large... Um, pretty large bin, but you should be aware that, you know, when someone comes in with dizziness, um, it's definitely a serious complaint, or it can be a serious complaint. So um, true vertigo, this other paper said that true vertigo is about half of all dizziness complaints. So 32 to 50%, that's kind of what the point is here. Um, so some famous people that had vertigo is, is uh, Martin Luther, who started the Protestant Reformation. And uh, Vincent Van Gogh, who apparently has many diseases because he was in Dr. <laughs> BC's study, and I think he was in BC's presentation, I think he was in last week's presentation too, um, as well as Alan, Alan Shepard, the uh, first American in space, and Luis Estero, who's a uh, supporting, yeah, yeah, he had vertigo, he had to quit, From later in life he was diagnosed, I think he had uh, many air disease. Yeah, he's the second person in space. Oh, second. Yeah. yeah, the first guy was a first American in space. First loser. The first person was a was a Russian no, guy. John Lennon, Louis Armstrong. Louis Armstrong. Armstrong. Louis Armstrong. <laughs> All right, so so I think so and uh, who? Yeah, a, Rus a Russian guy. Okay, so so we'll go to review some anatomy of the vestibular system since since this kind of may escape some people because it was all the way way back in med school. Um, so you have the uh, bony labyrinth, which contains the membranous labyrinth. So the bony labyrinth is really just the casing. The membranous labyrinth is all the structures inside, and it's uh, surrounded by uh, lymph fluid. And you have the cochlea, which is uh, down, which is, I can't, oh, here it is. You have the cochlea here, which is used for hearing. You have your uh, saccule and utricle, which are otolithic organs. And you have your semicircular canals, which work by sensing motion of uh, the endolymph with uh, hair cells. And um, that's pretty much how, you, how they work. The, the sensation for the uh, semicircular canals is in, the, is in the, cu the cupula, which is, this is also a cupula on a, on a cathedral. And um, the uh, saccule and utricle are mostly for uh, tilting and linear movement in the vertical plane, whereas the semicircular canals are uh, more for a more positional Um, and then here's the uh, blood flow of the cerebellar system, the other component of uh, balance because your sensation from your uh, semicircular canals is going to go to your cerebellum. And these are the arteries that if you have a cerebellar stroke, you can see here the vertebral artery kind of going up the medulla and it gives off the uh, pica, the aica, and then the SCA. And you, have the, uh, and you have the ponds right here. I thought this was a good picture of how the of the uh, cerebellar blood flow. Okay, so the purpose, when you do a neuro exam, what you want to make sure you're, you're coming away with is you want to find what the symptoms are because a lot of times 
uh, the patient may have other symptoms that they're not aware of. And this, this goes for any neuro exam. So, you know, someone comes in with stroke, they have right-sided weakness. Well, if they have a severe right-sided weakness, they may not notice that they also have a mild right-sided weakness. So, so if someone comes in and you're doing a vertigo, uh, neuro exam for vertigo, you want to make sure you, def uh, you clarify all their symptoms and you make sure they don't have any other symptoms um, as well. And you want to try and define where the lesion is and if you know what the symptoms are, where is the lesion, you should be able to figure out what's causing the lesion or neurology should be able to figure out what's causing the lesion. Um, so some of the symptoms that you'll, you might get from the history of a vertigo patient is, um, will fall into two categories. So central patients tend to have kind of a slow, persistent, mild uh, presentation. They may have other deficits. They may have gait imbalance. They may have, uh, you know, maybe facial droop if they're having a stroke. So, so basically the, the, the central patients will have a uh, more mild presentation than peripheral patients who are going to have acute episodic um, symptoms. And they're definitely going to be more severe, often with lots of nausea and vomiting. Um, they will not have other neurodeficits, and both groups may have hearing loss. So 50% of the time, the history should give you um, the correct etiology of the uh, dizziness. Um, and that's just in, in the sense of whether or not it's going to be vertigo or cardiac or, um, or disequilibrium. So, so the history is pretty important, but 50% uh, of the time, it's, it's going to not really be too helpful. So you want to make sure you get if they have any other comorbidities, um, if they have a sense of motion, if it's positional, um, how long the episodes last, if the patient takes any other drugs and any other associated symptoms. So these are the kind of the high points you want to hit on a uh, dizzy slash vertigo patients. And, and because the history is not as specific, you don't always want to, unless they're giving you a very, very clear sensation of vertigo, you don't want to just say, oh, you know, this patient has vertigo, I'm not going to do an EKG. So you always want to kind of keep those other, keep everything else in your differential. Um, on the physical exam, um, this is one of the, this component, you should check for uh, trauma, uh, perform a cardiovascular exam, like I mentioned before, you know, make sure you get EKG and, and do heart sounds, and you want to do cranial nerves, um, try and walk the patient, and if the patient has any diplopia, ataxia, or weakness, they should go directly to the MRI. Um, those are indicative of a cerebellar uh, problem. Um, so this would be the first part of your exam, which is... Um, kind of like a general physical exam. The second part is hearing loss. Now, I don't think, I don't know how applicable this is to the emergency department, but I felt it was still important to include since it's technically part of the, uh, the uh, vertigo workup. And I've never seen the uh, Weber or Ryan test. Uh, I haven't done a Weber and Ryan test in the ED, but, but um, just to kind of review it, the, the Weber test is the one where you uh, hit the tuning fork and you put it on the patient's head. So if they have a conductive disorder, it's going to localize to the, um, a, the, uh, uh, the affected side because that side is going to have lower conduction. So they won't be hearing outside noises too well and they'll be able to hear the uh, tuning fork on top of the head very well. If they have a central disorder or a nervous disorder, it's going to localize to the unaffected side because the affected side is going to have poor uh, poor nervous conduction in general, so they're not going to, they're going to have trouble hearing from that side, whether or not, where, wherever the sound comes from. And the Rhine test is where you put the tuning fork close to the patient's ear until they're unable to hear it, 
and then you put it on their uh, mastoid process. And in vertigo patients, the Ryan test will be normal, where air conduction is better. Um, you can also, there's also this component of the hearing exam, which I, I did not know at all, and I, I don't think we ever went over it in, oops, we ever went over in med school, which is cochlear, which is retrocochlear -co hearing loss. So uh, retrocochlear hearing loss, they'll have less than 70% discrimination of very lightly spoken words. Um, I think this is something you learn more with experience if you do this exam on a lot of patients, but, but if they're having a lot of trouble hearing uh, softly spoken words, then um, that could kind of tip you towards going towards an MRI, um, but this is probably going to be more of a neurologist um, exam. Um, you also want to make sure to do a Romberg sign. Um, so you ask the patients to close their eyes, hold their hands out, and, and I think a lot of times uh, it's been said that this really tests cerebellar function, but it, really, it also tests proprioception. So this tests the entire cerebellar um, proprioception axis. If they cannot hold their balance while they're closing their eyes and their arms are held out, then they're having difficulty sensing their position. And you can't say that it's, it's because of the cerebellum, but it could be because they have a neuropathy, it could be because they have vertigo, um, and Romberg sign uh, will, be, will be positive in, in uh, central patients. Um, they'll also have nystagmus. In, uh, in central vertigo, the nystagmus will not be fatigable, so it will kind of continue throughout the exam. Um, it'll be unidirectional. It may be rotational where it kind of bends to one side and it'll be lateral, not vertical. Or not vertical. And loss of fixation will, will alter how the patient feels. So if they close their eyes, um, they will feel better. And central disease is the exact opposite. So if they close their eyes, they will not feel better. And they may have nystagmus in multiple directions and it'll be vertical. And like I said before, if a patient has, and if a patient has vertical nystagmus, they go to MRI. So I had some videos, but unfortunately, I don't know why they don't work, but I, I still have them over here for you. Let me just get them over. So this is a video of, uh, I'll kind of do this for a little while. So this is Dix, the Dix-Hallpike maneuver. So the Dix-Hallpike maneuver is a maneuver where you suddenly... Uh, yeah, <laughs> these are, <laughs> so th this is going to allow you to uh, see, th these prevent the patient from fixating so they don't have as much, uh, so you can see their eyes are Fresnel goggles, so you can still see the patient's eye, but um, they won't feel as much vertigo when they, when they do the maneuver, and this is, this is more for video, video purposes. So when you do the Dix Hallpike maneuver, which is um, the first portion of the Epley maneuver, this is what you will see. Um, the patient's eye. And this is a peripheral, peripheral vertigo. So you see the, the, you roll the patient back and turn their head to the side. And they'll kind of have this vertigo that goes, or this uh, nystagmus that goes to the side. And it will slowly... Uh, go away. That was six seconds. And I think I think they'll repeat it, but there's not a. Oh, yeah, you know they bring the patient up, and you know this is just going to show it uh, fatiguing again.
And then here's a clip of vertical nystagmus, which I think everybody should be, which is pretty self-explanatory, but um, added in here because I thought it would be, thought it'd be a good, good addition. So you can see, you know, this is persistent vertical nystagmus. So again, if the patient's doing that, you're you're concerned for a central vertigo, and you would want to send that patient to the MRI. And another way you can test for uh, nystagmus is the test of skew, and this is something that I was talking about with Dr. Burns, and this test is a type of nystagmus where the patient will not be able to look in the same direction with both eyes. And you'll see when one eye is covered. So, so you'll see um, that he's having, so now the patient is trying to look forward and you'll see that when you have him look with each eye, his right eye is kind of looking a little more inferiorly and he has to readjust each time. So he's trying to look for, he's trying to look straight at you. And this is, is a, uh, it's 100% sensitive and 96% specific for uh, central central vertigo. So you had them look straight at like your nose. Mm -hmm. You cover and one of their you eyes. You cover one and you switch it from side to side. And when you take your hand away from their eye, if it's positive, their eye, when you move your hand away, will be looking down and have to readjust. Yeah, they're right? going to have to keep readjusting their eye. Oh, hey, it's working now. So they're going to have to keep readjusting their eye um, every time you, they'll have to keep readjusting every time when you switch eyes. a normal person, when you move your hand away, their eyes should still just be looking at yeah, you. Yeah, they won't have a, they won't have to readjust. But how is that different from just strabismus? From strabismus? Well, strabismus is when, um, strabismus is when one eye is permanently not, permanently misaligned. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's a mnemonic, I, I might have mentioned this to you before, that's called HINTS, and it's called the HI is head impulse testing, the N is nystagmus, and then it's the test of skew, which is the T and the S form. Yeah. The head impulse testing, as it is with the test of skew, although it's said that any physician that's trained adequately can do it, the signs, even in this clear close-up are pretty subtle mm -hmm. and um, boy I, for me I'm like is a guy just readjusting his eyes or is this a true positive and they're saying 100% sensitive and 97% specific which um, it is what it is but gosh I, I don't know if I can make that determination not having it done not, not performing this test a uh, bazillion times so these, these tests are um, you might hear of it in some of the recent literature that comes out, especially mm -hmm. in emergency department and neurology literature as it pertains to vertigo of a central versus peripheral source, but um, personally I find it kind of difficult. Yeah, I've never actually even performed this type of test on anybody, so I, I actually, tr I might try and do it just to see if I can see what the normal is, see if I can at some point differentiate an abnormal. Austin did it on a night shift on 
don't know, maybe a month ago or something, and some of them were po clearly positive, but, uh, you know, I, I it was peripheral. It was, it was tough to do. Can you go over head impulse testing? What do you, are you going to talk about that, Rod? Uh, no. Hey, hey. Um, so the, the hints mnemonic, I, you can look it up online, just Google hints, but the head impulse part of it is, is that in a normal person who doesn't have peripheral vertigo or central vertigo or anything, if you like have <coughs> them look right at you and you grab their head between your hands and you tell them to just try and focus on your nose and then you rapidly turn their, well not like super rapidly, <laughs> but you turn their head to one side, the saccades should work and so they should be able to maintain fixation on your nose. So, whereas, interestingly, like, in peripheral vertigo, it'll be abnormal. So what will happen is, if it's a peripheral vertigo, you turn their head to one side, and their eyes go with it. Their eye doesn't stay fixated on your nose. And I don't remember why. Whereas, if it's central, they'll still maintain the saccades. So, it should be abnormal in peripheral. In peripheral. Vertigo. Right. Yeah, which is a little weird, but yeah, that's that one, I think. And this lady I had had like history of Meniere's disease or whatever. Came in like super vertiginous. Clearly a reason, you know, probably not central. And um, <coughs> it definitely worked. Like I turned her head and she like couldn't stay fixated on my nose. Pretty cool. So you get a positive head impulse. You get a positive you, head impulse. You could they, get positive nystagmus. They, yeah. But you have a normal test of skew. Uh, so the whole hints thing is for peripheral. And this diagnosis part, I don't know if I remember correctly, it's like the direction of the fast-beating component is one way and central and the other way and peripheral, and I can't remember which is which. And then um, the test of skew is if it's peripheral, their eyes, if you cover one eye, you'll see one eye readjust to look at you. That's abnormal. That would be central. <coughs> so in a peripheral vertigo, their eyes would stay and they wouldn't move at all. So the nystagmus portion is the change in direction. So if right. it's vertical nystagmus, um, that's a central yeah. vertigo, and you should if send them to the horizontal nystagmus, and it's a change in direction, regardless of which way you're turning the head. Mm -hmm. That's abnormal. Mm -hmm. That means it is indicative of a central source. Right. So if okay. it always ticks to the right, and then all of a sudden you move their head, and it ticks to the left. Yes. Then that's abnormal. But if it always ticks to the right, it could be normal. Correct. It could be peripheral. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So just to add some more confusion, this is actually, I looked up a little bit into what actually causes nystagmus, like why, like what is nystagmus. So when you, so when you have, um, when you turn your head, um, that causes a change in your vestibular system. That's transferred through your brain stem. It goes, um, then it goes back, it goes to your eyes through the, uh, uh, MLF, and then it goes, and then your eyes change position, and you have a smooth uh, change in your uh, pupils. But if you have a problem in the system, then the frontal lobe will try and take over, and it can't do it perfectly. So you try, so that's how you end up with nystagmus. And there's obviously a lot of different types of nystagmus, but but essentially, um, if there's a conflict between your cerebellum and your vestibular system. Uh, the frontal lobe will try and refixate your eyes, and that will end up causing uh, nystagmus. So, um, so to kind of go back, go back over the exam, you want to make sure you get a good history, differentiate what type of uh, what their dizziness really is, 
uh, do a thorough neuro exam, do cranial nerves, um, try and check their hearing, do a Romberg sign, um, try and check for nystagmus, and attempt to reproduce their symptoms. Um, and then, you know, always try and walk the patient. I didn't really emphasize it. I mentioned that earlier, but, but that's a good, uh, a good way to differentiate. Uh, it's some good information when it comes to differentiating uh, central and peripheral, peripheral vertigo. Um, now, uh, okay, and that's it for this slide. Um, so, causes of central vertigo. Um, so, it's pretty much anything that could be impinging or compromising the cerebellum. So they could have a CVA, they could have a vertebral basilar ischemia, they may have a CPA mass, basilar migraine. Um, generally, if a patient has an acoustic neuroma, it'll, it'll grow too slowly, and they'll, they'll be compensating for any changes in their, uh, in their, in their uh, balance system. And th these uh, diseases may or may not always present with vertigo, but, um, and they're generally not isolated, but they may be the chief complaint. And here's a slide showing a uh, cerebellopontine angle tumor. You can see it right there. And on this next slide, an uh, acoustic neuroma. It's in a slightly different position. It's a little more lateral. So when it comes to peripheral vertigo, um, there's a couple different causes. So you could have benign positional vertigo, many errors disease, a neuronitis or labyrinthitis, or you could have post-traumatic, um, where you have physical damage to the vestibular system. So if you have uh, BPV, uh, this is the most common. Um, episodes of vertigo will last seconds, so they'll be fast on, fast off, and they're generally associated with the change in your head position and uh, nausea and vomiting. So, any, so if you do the impulse testing, they may get ill. If you do Dick's Hall Pike, uh, they may get ill. If you try and do Epley's Maneuver, which is uh, coming up later, they may get ill. And um, because it's a peripheral vertigo, if they close their eyes, um, they'll feel much better. And it's generally caused by dislodged calcium carbonate that made it into the, uh, uh, into the semicircular canals or is floating freely in the uh, utricle or saccule and, and causing them problems. They will not have any uh, hearing problems. And this condition can last up to six months. Um, they may also have many airs disease. So this disease is uh, caused by an increase in endolymph. So as you can imagine, it's compressing all of that, all those uh, membranous structures. Um, the episodes will last minutes, um, and they'll have a decrease in hearing. They'll have a sensation of ear pressure. They may have tinnitus and aching, um, and this can can lead to deafness or permanent um, auditory symptoms. And they should probably see ENT as an outpatient. Um, where they may need ototoxic treatment to relieve symptoms, or I, I believe sometimes they, they do a shunt, but I don't think it's very, I haven't read about it being effective. Um, and uh, neuronitis and labyrinthitis are pretty similar. These are uh, irritations of the nerve and the labyrinth in general. Um, they're usually viral. Um, the symptoms will slowly increase over days, um, but they'll still have the same episodic um, uh, story. They'll appear pretty ill. The way you can differentiate with them is labyrinthitis associated with hearing loss, which makes sense because the inflammation is, is over the entire labyrinth versus with neuronitis, it's only the nerve. Um, both of them should resolve in three to six weeks. Um, they're not, uh, you got, they're not um, acute emergencies unless you have a fistula, mastoid disease, or meningitis. In that case, these patients need to be admitted.
Uh, you may also be vertigo uh, after trauma. So if you had a if you had a big valsalva or a TM rupture or a temporal bone fracture, you can have a you can be dizzy. Or I'm sorry, you can be vertiginous, and these will usually replicate with valsalva maneuvers because it's going to change the pressure inside the uh, inside the bony labyrinth. And this here is, and I'm going to show a video right now of Epley's maneuver. So you should have the patient look towards the source of fast nystagmus or the side that the spinning is away from or the side they fall towards on Romberg. So this is where, how you should do, this is how you perform Epley's maneuver. And it's a, it, if you read about it, it's pretty, it sounds like it's pretty complicated, but it's not a very complicated uh, maneuver. And you're, usually patients resolve supposedly two to three after you perform it two to three times, and a lot of the st and the studies that I looked at that described it said that they performed it I think three to four times. But um, you know I I tried this on two patients and they both got way too dizzy for me to continue. And and the the thinking behind this is that it will uh, reposition the calcium carbonate uh, in a way where it will not cause further uh, stimulation of the of the. Uh, semicircular canals. And you should be guiding their head the entire time. These the patients are usually old, so they're not going to be very good. And they're going to be dizzy this entire time and not wanting to follow um, the, your instructions. And that's it. You pretty much have them look to one side, put their head down, rotate to the other side, and then sit up. And 30 seconds in each position. You only have to do 30 seconds? Because I was told you had to wait for the nystagmus to stop, for the sensation to stop. Um, the, the, it takes like 10 minutes. Yeah, the, the method I read was, was 30 seconds. Can you explain again which side? Which sides? Yeah. So, they, so if they're, the side they fall towards on Romberg, the source of fast nystagmus or the side the spinning is away from. So the, the, so the source of the spinning, the source of the fast nystagmus or the side they fall towards on Romberg. Um, so you can treat, um, so there's a couple of different ways you can treat vertigo. You can give antihistamine and anticholinergics. These are the mainstays. And these essentially inhibit your vestibular feedback loop. So this is why uh, the attendings always say it's dangerous to give this to old people, and it's dangerous to give it to people that really don't have vertigo. Because if they don't have vertigo, you're basically giving them poor balance. So you can give meclizine, uh, diphenhydramine, and um, scopolamine is in the books. I know Dr. Fox likes that um, for his boat, but it's not a very effective uh, treatment for vertigo. It's not, not strong enough. So usually you give meclizine um, and possibly diphenhydramine. You can also give uh, phenothiazines, which also uh, work on these acetylcholine pathways. And you can also give benzodiazepines, which will, which will give a general inhibition. But, uh, you know, since given that their patients are generally pretty old, um, I don't know if I, would, if I think it's safe to kind of just send them home with, with diazepam around the clock. Um, so just a quick recap, um, you know, you want to make sure that the patient is really having vertigo, uh, 
when it, you want to make sure if a patient is or is not having vertigo when they come in and they say they're dizzy. So make sure you're doing the right workup. Make sure you get a history. Make sure you walk the patient. Make sure that you attempt to at least reproduce the symptoms and you do a good neuro exam and you do a thorough uh, uh, evaluation of their types of nystagmus. And by the end of that, you should be able to figure out if, if a patient has central or peripheral vertigo and um, treat or image as appropriate. And beware the antihistamines, the anticholergics, and benzos because they can worsen or mask symptoms. And in general, they'll, they'll decrease the intensity but not the frequency of, um, of the, uh, the disease. And that's the end. And I, I have three questions. So the first question is this one. You guys can let me know when it's when it's next. And do you give it, can we give the answers afterwards, or um, no? It's a unless recorded. Oh, okay, okay. Are you guys ready for the next one? Okay. Okay, and the next one? Is ready? Yeah? Okay, so. Hopefully you guys, uh, hopefully that was useful for everybody. And, uh, yep. and, uh, are there any, any questions? Or?